0: Welcome to Entry Denied, a podcast on U.S. immigration in the years of Donald Trump. I'm Alex Alenikoff. I direct the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York.
1: And I'm Deb Amos. I report on immigration
0: for National Public Radio. In this series, we've been looking at major actions of the Trump administration that have transformed the U.S. immigration system. We've called the series Entry Denied because we have focused on policies that have sought to keep immigrants out. The Muslim ban, decimation of the U.S. refugee program, ending asylum at the southwest border, and of course, the wall.
1: Today, we're taking a moment to reflect on what these changes mean for the nation and for our understanding of what it means to be an American. We speak with Hector Tobar, author, journalist, and a professor at the University of California,
0: Irvine. He's currently working on a book. Hector Tobar, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You've got a book in progress that you have tentatively titled The Sisyphus Project, and you describe it as a book about the Latino soul in the age of hate. You've shared some of the pages with Deb and me, and we'd love to talk with you about them. We'd like you to read some of the excerpts, if you wouldn't mind, and we'd like you to start with a paragraph about the creation of border barriers.
2: For about 100 years, the border consisted mostly Of the 276 marble and steel markers erected by a bilateral commission and its successors. In other words, the border was largely an abstraction, an imaginary line in various desert and mountain landscapes, and in the center of the Rio Bravo del Norte. In 1971, when First Lady Pat Nixon visited the newly inaugurated Friendship Park on the border at Imperial Beach, south of San Diego, she was able to shake hands with members of a large crowd of Tijuana residents who reached across the few strands of barbed wire that marked the border then.
1: Hector, that's such a striking image of no border at all. Over the years, of course, that border hardened. Was there something that was more than just security or the notion of workers coming to the United States without proper documentation that made America so insistent on making that border more concrete.
2: Well, I think what what really caused the frenzy of wall building that we now know today was the great demographic changes of the early 1980s, when Mexico and Central America suffered a series of economic and political catastrophes that caused so many people to migrate. And that migration changed California. And it's really in California where you start to see the first walls going up first with steel plates that were military surplus from uh, from the first gulf war uh, that were that were put up to uh, to create a more substantial barrier and so to me it really has a lot to do with an idea of what the United States is supposed to look like, and what the culture of the United States is supposed to be, and the fear of the other, and the sense that first California and the rest of the United States was losing a, a sort of essence of itself by allowing so many people to cross through this theoretical barrier that used to exist.
0: When Donald Trump announced that he wanted to build a wall, a lot of people saw that as a sort of major break in the way we've conceptualized these borders. But the story you're telling here is that there really has been a consistent hardening of that barrier over these last 30, 40 years. How do you see Trump's wall?
2: Well, first and foremost, I see it as a work of performance art. I mean, I think that that Trump's election campaign was itself a a kind of performance that, that got out of hand. The wall is something that is supremely inefficient because it's such an easy barrier, even at 10 feet high, to avoid, to dig underneath or to go around. And so primarily I see it as something that says more about the United States and the way it sees itself and the way its leader sees himself than anything else.
1: One of the things that you write about is this idea that this is not really about immigration. It's about something larger. It's about culture. It's about identity. It's about whiteness versus brownness. And I wondered if you could read a paragraph where, where you
2: address that. Today, the wall is at the center of the way this country thinks about people of Latin American heritage. The barriers at the border exist to stop this country from turning brown or browner than it already is. The wall is a nativist response to the growth and spread of Latino communities in every one of the states of the United States in the first decades of the 21st century. And since people of Latin American heritage are now the nation's largest minority group, the wall is changing the way the country sees itself. The wall and the restrictive immigration policies it epitomizes are redefining what it means to be Latino or Latinx, if you prefer. And to an even larger group of people, the wall is redefining what it means to be white.
0: That last sentence is is really evocative. Can you say a bit more about how the wall is redefining what it means to be white in the United States? So I think that there is a
2: way in which Americans think of themselves as residents of this territory that's surrounded by danger. And so Mexico represents barbarism and danger. And so part of what makes us proud to be Americans is that we are separated from these darker skinned people, the hordes to the South. Whiteness is something that has been increasingly studied by historians, tracing this idea of what white means in American society, going back to the founding of the Republic. Today, I think whiteness is increasingly defined by not being a foreigner.
1: When President Trump issued a presidential order that he was closing immigration for economic reasons, to keep jobs for Americans, I asked lots of historians if there was any precedent for limiting immigration based on jobs. And they said, yes, yes, yes. In 1931, there was a project and it was called American Jobs for Real Americans. And there were roundups in California all the way to Michigan of Mexican workers some of them were American citizens many of their children were American citizens more than a million were rounded up and dumped in Mexico how is this different now
2: Yes you're referring to the to the great deportations of the uh, of the 1930s and 40s uh, especially in California they destroyed communities and changed uh, lives the fact is that every group that has come to the United States has had to fight its way in and and fight to justify being part of the United States. And that every group has come here to be exploited, right? People are invited into work, right? Southern Europeans were invited in to address labor shortages of the late 19th century, early 20th century. America accepts them because they're cheap labor. I think there isn't any difference really between that and what's happening today. The very fact that Mexican and Central American, Latin American people exist in the situation where they're being accepted to work at low-paying jobs by their employers, yet exist in the status in, in which they're highly exploitable, that serves America's interests. Donald Trump is only the most recent actor in which we enact this drama of pulling these brown people towards us, and at the same time we say we want to expel them. And by doing that, creating an entire class of people, now 11 million undocumented people in the United States who are, many of them, almost de facto American citizens, lived here their entire lives, right? except for their uh, years of infancy or came at a very young age, have invested in this country, built homes, paid taxes for a generation, and yet are not full citizens.
0: The wall seems to be opposed by a majority of Americans, just not the current occupant of the White House. Do you see a possibility of changing that narrative in the future, or do you think that this wall is, is up to stay for a while and that this message is likely to continue into the future?
2: Well, I think as you point out, the vast majority of Americans are comfortable with the Latino immigrant people in their midst. They work with them, they've intermarried with them, they've gone to school with them, and they don't see them as an existential threat. So I think it's very possible that we will soon see a time in which this mania for wall building and, and border building comes to an end. Building walls, the xenophobia that has served so many Republican politicians well, has become a kind of drug for GOP politicians. And and this drug actually has antecedents, right? Before there was this anti-immigrant frenzy, there was welfare. Many, many historians have traced the use of fear of the other, uh, fear of people of color in Republican politics and in far-right politics over the last 50 years. And so to me, this is only the latest version uh, of this drug. And I think that uh, the patient reached a state in which any higher doses of this drug of xenophobia and racism isn't going to have the same high as it used to. I think that's what Black Lives Matter and the great African-American spring that we saw, right, in which millions of people marched against police brutality, against this overt, explicit, violent racism that was playing out on our screens, right, Uh, this this videotape uh, uh, murder of George Floyd. finally after generations, that Trump card no longer works. In fact, now a majority of American people even support kneeling for the national anthem. And so I think what we're starting to see is an exhaustion of that strategy as a mainstream political tool.
1: You grew up as a hyphenated American. Was your experience as a kid and now as an adult different than kids who don't really say anymore that they're hyphenated?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in the late 1960s and the 1970s in a period of tremendous optimism. I do remember calling myself a Guatemalan American, and there was this sense that we were just the latest in a long line of different migrant peoples who would come to be incorporated and to assimilated into the American project, like the Italian-Americans or the German-Americans. I think now we're a country where people take absolute pride in their heritage and who actually think of the United States as a place that is most cool because of its ethnic diversity. <laughs> you know, that's something that I think has really begun to evolve in the last 10, uh, 15, 20 years. I see that with my kids, you know, my kids, their generation, much more comfortable with ethnic mixing, with fluid notions of ethnic identity. Even the term Latino isn't really complicated enough to explain how they feel about themselves. And so I think we're seeing a period of redefinition of what it means to be an American, redefinition of what ethnicity is.
0: Hector, I'd like to follow up on that by asking you to read another paragraph from your manuscript. It includes the sentence, it's clear my Latino students see themselves at the center of heroic narrative. Can you read that paragraph? They might
2: not say so explicitly, but to me, it's clear my Latino students see themselves at the center of a heroic narrative. Their family stories are filled with great dangers and great deeds. But instead of the Cyclops, and the sirens, and Poseidon, and the ocean storms of Homer's odyssey, they have to endure rural inequality, corruption, the illiteracy of parents and grandparents, smugglers, deserts, immigration courts, and segregated neighborhoods,
0: and urban decay, and gentrification. And how do you find your students dealing with those emotions, those feelings, those understandings of the world they live in? Well,
2: you know, I'm so lucky that um, I teach writing at a public university. Every academic term brings this flood of stories in which my students are working out their issues. And I just see a lot of pride in roots, you know, a lot of pride in the labor of their parents. I think that a lot of my students have fathers and mothers who, you know, work two jobs to make ends meet or who have stories of border crossings and even deportations and reinvention that are just so wonderful. And so it's one of the things that makes me most optimistic about the future of this country is to see how young people who've seen their parents' generation vilified can still have a self-image that is one of being powerful and unique and beautiful. I sort of see that enduring through... The last decade of just ethnic hatred we've seen on the American airwaves, and now I see it enduring through these, uh, you know, weeks and months of unemployment and economic crash and pandemic, and now you know an uprising that, that, that took place in so many American cities. Just to see my students thinking of themselves as actors in history at a young age really, really gives me a lot of hope.
1: Hector, you also write about pain. And there are many images in the mainstream media that show that children separated by a deportation that no one in the family expected, a father and a mother instantly gone, children left without explanation about their their parents disappearing from their lives and having to raise their children on Zoom from a thousand miles away. That also is part of the writing experience of your students?
2: Oh, absolutely. I've read so many stories about pain inflicted by American immigration policies, but also about pain that comes from the inequalities that drive immigration in the first place. Families that were already broken before someone chose to migrate or families dealing with what it's like to live in an American city where rents are sky high and people are crowded into a room. And so absolutely, those themes are are so visible and so powerful uh, in the work that my students do. But I also, maybe I'm just lucky. I'm lucky to be working with university students. And every university student is someone who's benefited from an act of love from a teacher or from a parent and who has learned from that love how to endure. And so I I prefer to sort of see this endurance and how it is born miraculously from the most difficult circumstances. I have one student, for example, who grew up with a single mother and her two aunts who were also single mothers. And it was three women living in an apartment in Long Beach And my student wrote this beautiful piece about what it was like to live, yes, poor, but also with three powerful women, (laughs) you know, in one apartment, and to witness that on a daily basis, to see that daily display, that performance of Latina motherhood and how that performance keeps a family going, the cooking, the discipline, the routines. And so, yes, These crises, this exploitation, these insults that you mention, are really for us, they are the foundation of what we would say in Spanish is nuestra hora de gloria, our hour of glory, our hour to, in the face of all these great obstacles, still triumph. And that, I think, is what is one of the most important parts of the Latino experience that isn't communicated yet in the mainstream media. It isn't communicated in American literature very often. Um, And that's sort of part of what my mission is as a writer, is to to communicate that.
1: You write specifically about this. And I wonder if you could read the paragraph that addresses this notion that it's not in the mainstream media.
2: The full complex truth of the Latino experience should be coming to you from Latino writers, from Latino directors and screenwriters. But the fact is, even if we had willing buyers for our complicated masterpieces, the existence of the fence and all it stands for makes us guarded in what we write and produce for you. If I tell you, for instance, something optimistic about the fate of the undocumented in America, and there are many reasons to be optimistic, well, then I'm betraying all the people who have been or are about to be deported by detracting from the hopelessness of their situation. And if I tell you a true story about the family dysfunction that leads, say, a Guatemalan kid to migrate, and those migration stories often have more than a little family dysfunction, then I'm tarnishing the reputation of a people who have already been repeatedly slandered. Art is born from ambiguities, from the complexities of real-life experience. The existence of the fence and the wall-to-be is one more obstacle that helps to erase that complexity from U.S. drama and literature. Why aren't we hearing those stories? I think that we're perceived to be a not very large market in the American culture economy. We're also a very young community. I'm in my 50s. I'm at the very beginning of the very first wave, you know, of, of Latino immigrants, in the middle of the 20th century, and now we've had um, successive waves of, of immigration. The students who are now uh, undergraduates in American universities were born in the late 1990s, right? They're the children of that big wave of immigrants from the 1980s, and they're just starting to read. They're just starting to become confident as both cultural producers and cultural consumers. And so their tastes are evolving. They are unaware
0: that, you know, art and literature can actually reflect the reality. Hector, I wanted to ask you about one more sentence in these wonderful pages. And let me start by saying, in in Robert Frost's poem, Mending Walls, there's this now regularly quoted line about good fences making good neighbors. You seem to express a very different view. Here's your sentence. The fence is a gun pointed at the heads of our neighbors. What did you mean by that? The fence is a
2: construction that has led to the death of thousands of people in the Southwestern desert. So, when the first fence is built during the Clinton administration in California, people begin to migrate further and further east uh, in the Sonoran Desert. And they end up entering this furnace that not only kills them, but also erases the evidence of their existence. Now, does that sound familiar? right? Does that sound familiar to students of history? And I think that that is what the fence has done to the bodies of thousands upon thousands of potential immigrants, people like my parents. My parents came in the 1960s before fence existed, when you could still get a visa at the United States Embassy in Guatemala to come visit the United States. And now those dreamers, those people who aspire to a better life, have no choice but to go through this furnace that kills people. Or, and not only the fence, but because the fence exists, there is now this organized crime infrastructure that transforms the journey from, let's say, Guatemala, El Salvador, or Ecuador into this odyssey of rape and torture and kidnapping. I have heard so many stories in the last 10, 15 years from friends and relatives, from students about a relative being locked in a safe house in Tucson or in a a narco-run kidnapping center in northern Mexico where people are held for ransom. Their relatives in the United States asked to pay thousands of dollars to liberate them. And so that wall, that policy of creating a uh, physical barrier Uh, That's ever more robust, uh, ever more difficult to cross, has transformed this migration into a violent act against thousands upon thousands of Latin American bodies. So, to me, that is why I say the fence is a gun pointed at the heads of our neighbors.
1: There will be something more than a fence, and in some parts, there already is a construction that President Trump campaigned on and worked to build. You say it's a performative barrier on the border, but does it in some ways say to people, don't come here in ways that no other barrier has done in the past?
2: I think the existing fences, the existing wall has already done that. And it it began to do it 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it became clear that coming to the United States without documents was a very dangerous uh, act. And so many, many people who would have migrated in the past no longer migrate. And so now what we have are increasingly the most desperate. People leaving from domestic violence, people uh, running away from gang violence uh, in Central America, people living at the very bottom of the economic pyramid in Guatemala. Right? Indigenous people who have lost their land, who can no longer exist by migrating to the places they traditionally migrate to, Guatemala City or the coast, the Pacific coast of Guatemala, to work in the cotton harvest, that no longer can sustain them. And so I think that any further construction really doesn't do anything more than what's already being done. It's just adding insult to injury, if I may use that cliche. It says more about the way Americans see themselves than how they see their neighbors.
1: That's it for this episode of Entry Denied. Thanks for joining us.
0: Sahil Ansari is our producer and engineer, and our music is composed by Eli Elenikoff.
1: Check our show notes on EntryDeniedPodcast.com, and you'll find a lot of resources to help you go even deeper into some of the issues we talked about in this
0: episode. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us. Leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week.